0: A commercially viable follow-up, discussing comments to our YouTube Terms of Service episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have somewhat of a special episode of Virtual Legality because it's a follow-up episode. The video that we did early last week on the terms and conditions that YouTube was changing in December of this year called Commercially Viable Doesn't Mean What You Think, A Lawyer Reads YouTube's New Terms of Service, has quickly become our most popular video. And that's very gratifying in certain respects, but it also means that a lot of folks that don't regularly follow virtual legality, don't regularly follow this channel, and are maybe interested primarily in the subject matter, have dived into our comments, have discussed things that I think we can offer some amount of clarity on. Now, if you haven't watched that video, some of this video probably won't make sense. So I recommend checking out that video and our discussion on the current YouTube terms and conditions and what YouTube is changing its terms and conditions to as of December 10th of this year. And one thing that you might've seen in social media, just as kind of a primer for this video, is that YouTube is adding a provision that says that it can terminate channels if they are not deemed commercially viable to YouTube. And I had seen a lot of, what I might classify as misinformation on the far end or just incorrect kind of understanding of what they are trying to accomplish in those terms and conditions on the near end in some of the articles that I had seen online. So I did this video to kind of clear things up a little bit, uh, but what wound up happening is while we got a number of comments that said, thank you for making this video, we thought that was clear and understandable, etc., We got a number of other comments in which people were talking about other things, either ancillary to what I was discussing or just disagreeing with the interpretation, which is absolutely fine. I don't want anybody that's listening to this or watching this to think that you can't disagree with me. The nature of law, and this is one of the things that we'll see in the comments, is to take novel things, things that people haven't necessarily thought about or interpreted or considered in the entirety of what the legal system requires and looks at them from new eyes, right? So YouTube has written here a provision that nobody has ever interpreted before because it's not anything that existed before YouTube proposed it for their terms of service on December 10th, 2019. And you might say, Rick, well, some of the language is very similar to what you might see in other terms of service, and that's correct. All language is somewhat built on the foundations of other language that has come before. But in this context, with the service that YouTube is providing, with what the current terms of service say and how you are moving to these new terms of service, that entire context, and how it should be interpreted once YouTube has it and has the power as of December 10th is a novel question. And what lawyers do every day is that they interpret or they guide or they suggest to their clients what language should be, how it might be looked at by courts or by other users, both in terms of law, yes, but also business, right? If this phrasing, if YouTube knew putting this phrasing out there would have this kind of backlash and this kind of high level of interest, Would they have used the exact same language? I doubt very much that they would, because as we talked about in our earlier video, they retained this power to cut off content, to cut off services to anybody for any reason. And all this language does is, as a function of making their terms of service more readable, it is more express about what powers they are retaining. And I said, that's a good thing. I said that in that video. And so we got a number of people that said, you know, I'm a shill for YouTube. We'll look at some of those comments because I think that's pretty inaccurate, especially based on some of the other videos I've done on YouTube and other giant tech companies' terms of service. But because this video looks at this and says, hey, there's no reason to panic any more than you're currently panicking because these terms don't really change YouTube's authority or power structure over you or anyone else. That doesn't mean I'm in favor of what YouTube's current power relationship is with its users or anything in respect of that. But it does mean that this is something that is creating a panic moment where I don't think it should exist because whatever authority YouTube has right now is the same authority that it will have on December 10th. So ultimately, yes, you might feel like YouTube can do what it wants and that's a problem and you should speak out against that. I'm entirely in agreement if that's what your position is, but it doesn't change on December 10th, and that's what we were trying to get across. But the purpose of this video is to take a look at some of those comments, to add a little bit of illumination and hopefully a little bit more understanding if I can, and to otherwise just talk about what it is that that video was meant to do and how I think in some places it appears to have missed the mark with some users uh, because they don't get that the primary concept of that video is that YouTube already has this total authority over its relationship with its users. And so highlighting how it might use that is ultimately a good because people can better understand, can better educate themselves and decide whether to start a channel, whether to devote more time to their channel. And it doesn't actually change the fact that YouTube could terminate them tomorrow without even waiting for December 10th. Now, I've classified these into a couple of buckets. This isn't a total look at all 400 some odd comments here, but I did see a few kind of strains of thought and understanding that were coming through the comments, and so I wanted to talk to you about them. The first one I've labeled is, everyone agrees on what commercially viable means. In other words, even though you say it doesn't mean what I think it means, we all understand what commercially viable means, and this is a waste of time, etc. Some of these quotes are, people generally understand that viability refers to being viable to YouTube rather than to the content creators themselves. If users are always commercially viable, there would be no need for a provision for the contrary condition. If YouTube decided to demonize a channel, that channel is not and will not be commercially viable. It's censorship disguised as a business commercial strategy. We're going to talk a a little bit about politics and some of the other comments that came in on those lines. But what if they change the definition of commercially viable later? And when I get taken down for just posting model train videos, I will remember this and remind you that you are wrong. So, A couple of things here, right? Primarily, the purpose of the video was to establish that YouTube already had this authority. One of the secondary purposes of the previous video was that I was seeing a lot of headlines that essentially said, YouTube can now get rid of a creator that isn't commercially viable. And maybe that's passive voice, maybe that's not as specific as it might be. But in reading those, just kind of quickly, looking at headlines like I think a number of people do, One of the things that it looked like to me was happening without reading the terms and conditions before reading those terms and conditions was that youtube was somehow earning or gaining or otherwise asserting a right to say hey we can determine whether we think this plan of yours is going to be a viable business model to look at your toy train video and say you know what this is never going to make you any money so we're going to cut it off now so you don't waste your time I think it's very easy to interpret a lot of those headlines as saying that youtube is reserving the right to determine your commercial viability to yourself i'll tell you because this was one of the things that was asked in a number of comments you know you the youtube channel for Hoaglaw isn't commercially viable insofar as it doesn't make enough money to live on it doesn't make enough money to feed the family or to keep the lights on i'm a law firm right we have clients we provide legal services to this is ancillary to that and i do it to hopefully talk and help people understand what's happening in news items around the world and particularly in the U.S., but I don't do it to get a ton of money, right? That's not the purpose of it. So if YouTube had the right to say that's not a commercially viable business model, they might be able to do that. They might be able to say, hey, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money there, so we're going to cut you off. But that's not what their terms say. Their terms actually say we're going to determine whether it's commercially viable to us, and one of the things that I pointed out in that earlier video is that that's always been the case. YouTube and Google are providing a free service through YouTube that says, hey, if you want to put some videos up, you can put some videos up. To some extent, if you are demonetized and or never reached a monetization threshold, you're just putting up family videos, maybe it's entirely private and unlisted, whatever it might be, YouTube is expending some very small amount of money just having the bandwidth, providing the server capacity for you to put those videos up and to have them accessible to someone else. YouTube is just straight up losing money on that individual transaction. You say, Rick, why do they do that? Okay, so the obvious one is because some channels grow up, become monetized, and then you split advertising revenue. But also it's because YouTube wants to collect data. YouTube wants to have you feel good about its brand name. YouTube wants to be a part of the Google family and wants you to be regularly interacting with its services. So maybe even if you don't demonetize YouTube, you can look and see another Google service and say, hey, YouTube's always treated me well. And so even though they're not directly making money off of me on this, I will go use some other Google application that maybe they do make money off of me on. This is a very standard kind of thing. We've talked about it in virtual legality before that goodwill is valuable and that companies do things all the time that in the short term, in the near term, cost them money on the premise that overall people will feel better about their brand and that they will do this thing now that costs them money so that maybe more people will get them more money later or there's another strategic purpose in the entire family of entities, right? Google is big. Alphabet is big. YouTube is a part of that. And so when we talk about what commercially viable means, I think it's important to look at the fact that when they say they're not going to provide services to folks that they might deem commercially viable, first of all, it's important to say they don't say will. They say may. They have the election. And that ultimately, YouTube always reserved the right to say, hey, if this thing we are putting out there into the world winds up costing us money, Then we can turn it off we are not under some kind of legal or other obligation to provide this thing that just burns money for us now you can say all right rick i understand that they have that legal right to turn it off i still think i should make hay and i should go on forums and complain about youtube being negative towards various content creators or maybe various content topics and i should make that known to the world because youtube i think is doing a bad thing with how they are choosing to curate what's on their service or how they are treating people. That is 100% fine. If you go and you look through all of virtual legality, I have never had a problem with someone going and saying, hey, they might have the right to do this thing, but that doesn't make it correct, and I'm going to go tell people that. I've never had that issue. So when I get comments that say that I'm doing something different to that, it bugs me just a little bit because that's never been the point. The point is to try to establish what leverage is, what the rights are, what the contract you are entering into means. And so that's why I made the video and said, hey, commercial viability doesn't actually have usage like a lot of people are reporting it to have. The next kind of bucket of things that I saw was disparate impact, where they said, okay, maybe YouTube has the right to do that. But they said, having had a Google YouTube account for about 10 years, I think what has people so uppity is the fact that larger channels have been getting away with breaking the rules, but other channels get penalized for next to nothing, and a rule change like this definitely doesn't help matters. I think that's a perfectly reasonable comment to have. I think in any kind of real politic, boots on the ground type situation, you are going to have circumstances where the content creator that makes YouTube millions is going to get more chances to break the rules and to potentially cause problems for YouTube than the tiny channel that doesn't make them millions. And that's not unique to YouTube. That isn't unique really to any of the structures of the United States. If you make them money, you're gonna have more opportunities to potentially violate the rules before they bring a penalty on you because they wanna continue making that money. And so I do think there is a thought process that says these new terms and conditions will allow them to have a greater right to have this disparate impact, or at least have some leverage in the language that they have proposed in these terms of service that allows them to get some kind of uh, coverage uh, in the media that they say, hey, we can look at these terms and say, we warned you about this and we can cancel you. I personally think that's unlikely, but I understand why people feel that way. And I don't think that Google or YouTube really needed that coverage. They don't need that term to actually do those things. As a matter of fact, one of the things that popped up again and again and again in my comments was the fact that this is already happening, that, that channels and content creators are getting terminated for reasons that these commenters felt were unjust. And one of the things I would point out to them is that it is already happening under the current terms of service. Google and YouTube don't need extra coverage. They don't need any extra rights to do what they are currently doing and what you're accusing them of doing. And in my opinion, which is all these kinds of things can really be, in my opinion, that extra language doesn't get them any more protection from you from complaining about it. The fact that they determine that provision of services to X, Y, or Z is no longer commercially viable to them is no different than them turning it off for any other reason or no reason. So I don't think they really need that power. And so I talk to these people, I look at these comments and I say, I don't think that this particular change on December 10th is going to cause these problems. To the extent these problems exist, they exist right now, they will exist in the future. Please do complain about them if you have issues with what YouTube is doing, but don't think that there is some giant sea change happening on December 10th. One of the other buckets that I got a lot of was the question of ad block. So question, what of users using ad block extensions are we considered not commercially viable? Couldn't people who use an ad blocker be deemed as not commercially viable too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, An ad blocker that interacts with YouTube in a specific way to prevent their marketing materials from getting to you is very likely a straight up violation of their terms of service anyway. And so if they decided to turn their eye on you, saw that you were using an ad blocker, they could terminate your rights right now. They haven't done that yet, as far as I understand. I don't use an ad blocker on YouTube, so I don't know. Uh, But these commenters are apparently using it right now and believe that this new term would allow Google and YouTube to terminate their access to YouTube even more so than it currently can. I will say this. Yes, I think YouTube can probably terminate your access if you're using an ad blocker. If you're interfacing with their software, with their website in a way that they don't want, then they can terminate you. And in, so doing when they add this bit of language that says it's not commercially viable to provide the service to you, you not receiving those ads, you not receiving those marketing is maybe a good indication of the fact that YouTube might want to terminate people more on this particular aspect of their relationship with its users. So this isn't content creators. And in my previous video, I was focused primarily on channels and content creators, but I think this is a legitimate concern for people that use adblock to say, yeah, YouTube probably could terminate you. However, YouTube probably can terminate you now. And there are still good reasons why they don't go forward with a mass termination is because they don't want to have to deal with that in the media. They don't want to have to deal with that negative goodwill out there amongst people that might otherwise use their service. So yes, they might do it in the future. They might do anything in the future because, as we've said before, in their terms of service, they have the rights to terminate their services, to eliminate content for basically any reason. So we look at something like this and say, yeah, if you're using Adblocker, maybe you should be concerned because this provision does seem to be pointed at those kinds of things. Then we get to COPPA. So it says, I have a question that scares me quite a bit. Can COPPA's new regulation affect my YouTube channel of three or four vids? Not to mention the horrendous COPPA law that was rushed through Congress without the public protesting it. Well, it it was a long time ago. Uh, But if you follow the channel, then you know that just a couple of days after the video that I did discussing commercial viability and the new terms of service on December 10th, I did a video called Copacabana on YouTube's legal requirement deception. Now, this is one of those reasons why I laugh at the people that call me shills or just in general in favor of YouTube or big tech or whoever it might be. I am a corporate lawyer, so I interpret these provisions and I look at them in a very specific light, and hopefully that's informative to you who are listening or watching this video. But... I also look at things that YouTube does and other services and other companies do and I have to call them out if I see something that really bugs me. So in this particular case, a couple days after this video about commercial viability went live, they wound up putting together a lot of notices to people, emails, things that pop up when you access YouTube that said it's your legal requirement to comply with COPPA. And so I made a video that said they are playing very fast and loose about whose legal requirements these are because COPPA applies to website operators. The FTC has never, to my knowledge, actually tried to attack a content creator on a service like YouTube for FTC malfeasance under COPPA, because COPPA's main requirement is that if you're a website operator, you won't collect data in these very specific ways from your website if it's directed to children. And the users of YouTube aren't collecting data. They aren't in charge of the website. They aren't in charge of how the website collects data and where it might collect it from. So to actually think that the FTC's requirements apply all the way down to the content creator level is a very attenuated interpretation of COPPA. We talk in that video about how I would bet YouTube's lawyers feel they're getting away with that language. And like all things, when you're talking about legal interpretation, there's probably a way to think about it where you can justify a legal memo on those uh, grounds. But ultimately, COPPA is something that folks should be worried about. YouTube is gonna go through a very significant transition when they ask people to label all of their directed at kids videos. I got a lot of DMs and a lot of emails and a lot of questions about what directed at kids means. And ultimately COPPA is very, very vague was never intended for a kind of user interaction content creator relationship with a website operator. It's very poor at kind of describing that relationship. And so while I can't help those people that contact me, I have a good conversation with them, but I explain that it would be legal advice and you need a client relationship and all these various things. It is worth kind of worrying about if you're on YouTube, if you are a content creator, Because COPPA is so vague, it is ultimately YouTube's responsibility, and primarily as a result of the FTC settlement that they had, they are trying to essentially send that responsibility down to their users, and yes, I think it's justified to be concerned about whatever their algorithm and whatever their bots are going to determine are directed at kids, particularly if you're making commentary or actually creating content in the video game and cartoon and toy spheres. But That's not legal advice because I don't know you. I don't know the specifics of your channel. And I do recommend if this is a concern to you, if it is your livelihood, if you have dedicated hundreds or thousands of hours to your channel, that you probably do consult with counsel to at least talk to you about what the potential issues are because ultimately the main issue is that YouTube can terminate you if they don't think you are playing by the rules in identifying your directed at kids content and that's going to be a problem and I think it's one that people are concerned about justifiably so and I saw it a lot in the comments to this commercial viability video that YouTube is doing a bunch of other stuff and you need to take it all in context and I think that's fair. YouTube has a number of issues. A lot of big tech companies have a number of issues today in 2019, certainly in the 2020s and going forward, but I don't think that's specific to what's happening in their terms and conditions as of December 10th. The next bucket I would call, and I only included two here, there's about 10, I think, shilling for big YouTube. YouTube's posterior has been officially kissed. You are a shill and similar statements. And I think, hey, I don't think that's particularly fair, but I think if you are worried about the December 10th terms of service and you watched my video or you listen to it in its podcast format, you might look at it and you say, hey, that's not how I interpret it. I'm justified to be worried and I think this guy's an idiot. That's fair, but I don't think I'm shilling and I think that the Copacabana uh, video really kind of hits that home. I think there are other videos in virtual legality and on the Hoglaw YouTube channel that would indicate that I am not a terribly big shill for any given company. Uh, And so I think that If you have that opinion, I would ask that you check out the video again, check out the language, check out what I'm actually advocating for in terms of understanding and interpretation and maybe give virtual legality another shot. Then we have the big one. And this is, this looks like a lot of words, but this was actually only a very small fraction of what was in the comments to this video. And I've labeled it constitutional rights and politics, but there's a whole lot here. So let's talk through a few of them and I will comment as we go through in a nutshell, YouTube reserves the right to undermine your First Amendment rights and to keep you in a box if they don't agree with your speech so your channel won't grow and your message will never be heard. Okay, let's start there, right? So the First Amendment we've talked about in virtual legality before. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. There's a lot of other language there that doesn't actually concern us with respect to YouTube. But I think it's very clear that Congress is not equal to YouTube. The First Amendment, and you might have heard this out there in the world from other sources, the First Amendment and the Constitution in general applies to what the government can do and cannot do. And the First Amendment says it cannot abridge the freedom of speech. Now, government has walked pretty close to the line in certain areas of freedom of speech, and so I think it's understandable why a number of people kind of get those lines blurred. But YouTube isn't the government. YouTube isn't infringing on your First Amendment rights. It might be, if you wanna kind of be a little bit clearer about what your overall concern is here, it might be uh, acting against First Amendment principles, the philosophy that free speech is a, better, is a betterment to all. I think you could make that claim that YouTube is taking any censorship at all. However, I think it's pretty well known that even these website operators, these, these overall ISPs, these service providers, have to have some ability to actually remove content. And we see that in very famous now, Section 230, and we're gonna get to that because a number of people bring it up. But that overall, the YouTube is not the government, and YouTube has to have the right to do some curating of its service just in order to avoid really, really bad things. You think of things like shootings and other things that find their way onto YouTube that YouTube gets rid of as quickly as it can, et cetera, et cetera. YouTube has to have some rights to do these things. And ultimately, it's a private company that has total rights to do it. The only question is what liability attaches to it. But that shouldn't be confused with the First Amendment, which basically says the government can't throw you in jail for saying something. Continuing on, do you idiots not see that way? YT, YouTube, has been acting as of late this all plays into it. It's not fear mongering when there is a clear evidence of YouTube failing their creators over and over again, as well as kowtowing to every censorous asshat out there. Again, I think you might classify this as YouTube not abiding by freedom of speech principles, but I don't think that you can take a video like a virtual legality, and yes, context is important, but I don't think you can just interpret it as, hey, these new terms of service should cause everybody to panic, because YouTube is already on the warpath. As I discussed earlier in this video, YouTube already being on the warpath primarily means that it already has the authority to do that. And to the extent we get better clarity as to what YouTube intends, it's a good thing. The new terms of service on December 10th are clearer, better able to be read by non-lawyers. And ultimately, if we want that clarity and that transparency, we should be in favor of that. Not in favor of the content necessarily, absolutely. Pout about the commercial viability provision or any other provision in there. We covered a number of them in that video as well. Commercially viable equals wrong think. Now, I think that's basically incorrect. I think that YouTube can get rid of whatever it wants uh, for wrong think, regardless of whether it's commercially viable to YouTube. But I do see this kind of thread of thought that YouTube is against certain forms of generally political thought, And that they're intending to use the commercially viable term to hit those political thinkers. And I think that's incorrect, again, because I think they have the authority to do that. Anyway, YouTube has been shown to ban people who have broken no rules. All these changes is just them trying to cover their asses for things they've already been doing. Also, if YouTube is a publisher, not a platform, they better be accountable for all the content that goes up and be liable to lawsuits as they do not have the open platform protections. Yeah, so that's 2.30. We're going to add the next comment to that one as well. While Google might be a private company, Google has an obligation by law to operate as a public service available to all, a public forum that is essentially a government-approved monopoly. In exchange for that, they aren't liable like a publisher for content. Okay, so those two comments are hugely, very significantly wrong. And I see this a lot in social media. I see this a lot in forums and various other things. Uh, But Section 230, you might have a philosophical debate with someone about whether or not the 230 protections should be afforded to internet service providers, because if they weren't afforded, then there would be potential lawsuits, and maybe that's something that people should have the right to do against the YouTubes of the world. But the fact of the matter is, they are codified into law right now. And basically what it says, if you're not familiar with this section, is it says, one, It is a policy of the United States to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services, unfettered by federal or state regulation. So ultimately, this is essentially anti-monopoly, right? If you started up a YouTube competitor right now, uh, you would be afforded the protections of Section 230. You would be able to get rid of things without liability, and you would be able to point to 230 to say, you can't sue me for my getting rid of that thing you could quote-unquote censor what is the content that your service actually shows on the internet because under this law it was determined that internet service providers, interactive computer services as defined here, it was necessary for them to have this protection in order to feel comfortable about the services they wanted to provide to the internet. You can disagree with the philosophy of this law, absolutely you can, but nowhere in it does it create a government monopoly Nowhere in it does it require your company to act for the public good, and nowhere in it should it be interpreted for either of those two premises, no matter how much you might want it, because this is the current state of the law. Absolutely. If you don't like it, change it. We've got videos in virtual legality about how 230 is maybe being abused in certain respects, but also how people are misinterpreting what its requirements are. And the main one is this. Protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. No provider or user of an interactive computer service, that's YouTube, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. YouTube will not be treated as the publisher for information provided by its content channel creators, period. That is a full sentence. It doesn't have exceptions. That is the state of the law as it stands right now. Further, no provider or user of an interactive computer service, that's YouTube, shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be a bunch of things objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Objectionable is one of those umbrella terms that I don't love in statutory code, but it is in the law as it stands today. So this basically says if YouTube finds it objectionable, they can remove it regardless of your constitutional protections. You can't sue them for it and they otherwise won't be treated as a publisher. Now, a lot of people start kind of positing that there might be a way to interpret someone that acts arbitrarily and capriciously as YouTube might be accused of doing to say, hey, they're no longer just the provider of an interactive computer service. They are, in fact, the provider of information content. And you look at this definition, it says the term information content provider means any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through an interactive computer service. So you have to actually go through the kind of tortured thought process to say maybe if YouTube acts really oddly, we might be able to say they are developing information through what they actually allow on their service, and maybe we could sue for what survives. You'll never be able to sue for what they remove because of this express language of this statute. But maybe we could say we could sue them for what survives. And that's when you see language, whether you're on a forum or on Twitter or elsewhere on the internet, and you see someone come up to you and say, well, they are not just a provider. They are, in fact, a publisher because they're acting in X, Y, or Z fashion. This is what they are trying to get at. But the reason it's such an attenuated, difficult legal case to make, and I think most lawyers would probably throw it out out of hand, is because you've got this express language. You've got a sentence that says, shall not be treated as a publisher. And that's very, very difficult to beat when you're in a court of law. So ultimately, it's, it's a loser right now with the way this language is written in the statute. But you do see it come up time and time again. And you saw it in the comments to my video as well. Continuing on, this doesn't really surprise me, but when they already have the ability to terminate anyone for any reason, to explicitly include something so specific in their terms of service, sounds suspiciously like they actually plan to use that specific excuse. Couple this with channels that are specifically demonetized for whatever reason, and there are fears of a frankly political nature, even if that is only one facet. Now, there's a couple things I would say to this comment. The first is, There is a usefulness in drafting what I would call belt and suspenders language into a contract. So you've got an umbrella term. Like we can eliminate all content to our heart's content. If we look at the actual provision of the language that we highlighted in our earlier video in these new proposed terms for December 10th, you see a bunch of stuff here. But one of the things you see is YouTube is under no obligation to host or serve content. And these commenters come out and say, hey, Rick, If that's the case, and if they also have right to terminate for cause, you have the right to terminate, why do they need this extra language? And I'm sympathetic to that position. They probably don't. This is probably already covered in their generalized right to remove content, to eliminate services, to target that removal or elimination to any individual user, which they explicitly reserve. And so they probably don't need this language but it's belt and suspenders. It indicates that they want to make sure that the user knows that they have the right to do this thing. And even if they had the right under the umbrella language in the current terms, they wanna make it expressly clear. And I think, again, that is to be applauded because all of this kind of backlash, all of this friction that they have with their users is primarily a result of them being open and honest with what they might choose to do with their powers and their authority. But I think when we look at the actual history of YouTube, if they've got a problem, they've got a problem right now because they are doing these kinds of things right now, according to my comments. And I can't pretend to know every bit of history over all the people and different channels and different users that were referenced in my comments. But they have that authority right now. They are making it clearer that they reserve the right to suspend services if they deem them to not be commercially viable. And so you can have a situation where you say, hey, maybe YouTube is just attacking things on a political basis. Absolutely. That might be a concern, but it's not a concern that lives solely and uniquely in the December 10th update. Thank you for the legal explanation of the terms of service. However, I believe the general fear is that YouTube has already assessed channels with content that can be monetized or not. For example, pretty much any channel with firearm content, no matter the size of the channel, i.e. subscriptions and views, has been demonetized through YouTube's algorithm because someone has determined that firearms are evil. The worry is that now that they have changed their terms of service and specifically called out commercially viable, will these channels that they have deemed as unfavorable to monetization now be deleted? And again, I think the monetization question is a bit of a red herring. There is an awful lot of YouTube that is not monetized, whether that's just sharing personal family videos or any other purpose that doesn't reach their now significant monetization thresholds. There's an awful lot of YouTube that is provided to YouTube users on the premise that YouTube gets something out of it just by having you interact with the service and potentially liking the service enough, liking the interface enough to ultimately go from that user's content to somebody else that is monetized, get those ad revenues, feel good about YouTube, maybe feel good about Google, use Google search, whatever it might be, that solely limiting the question to, are you monetized? If not, then you are not commercially viable, is skipping a whole bunch of the business equation. And yeah, we cannot... Put ourselves in YouTube's shoes. We can't guess as to what they might be thinking at any given point in time. But one of the things I highlighted in my earlier video was that there can become certain outside circumstances that would say, hey, maybe it's no longer wise to provision YouTube to country X or state Y. And that I think is ultimately what we're talking about primarily here, which is Congress passes a law. California passes a law that somehow makes it more difficult for us to provide this service. Let's say Congress got rid of Section 230. How would YouTube respond? YouTube would look at that and say, well, we have a couple of choices. We can either hire a whole bunch of people to start deleting a whole bunch of videos because we're now liable for what goes up on the service, or we can just shut it down in the United States, or we can shut it down in a different country that tries to impose liability in a way that we don't like. And it has to be clear to our users that we reserve the right to do that. And I don't think anybody that looks at this and understands that YouTube is a business that otherwise provides its service for free would begrudge them the opportunity to say, hey, if it becomes something that would cost a huge amount of money to just provide, we're not in the charity business. We can cut it off. We can end the provision of those services. We can close the whole thing. And I think everybody understands that at a kind of fundamental level, but they're worried about YouTube doing it arbitrarily to firearm channels or to something else that you might personally like. And I think YouTube does have the capacity to do it arbitrarily. Certainly YouTube itself and the people at YouTube that are operating it that are otherwise kind of going over these things internally might have their own political feelings and might decide to use those and exert them through YouTube. By all means, complain about those. Absolutely. Get out there and complain about those. Put big, giant, uh, articles out in major outlets, whatever it might be. But don't think that just because there is language changing on December 10th, that YouTube is doing something differently. YouTube already had the right to do this, which is why this is even a point of discussion because they already have been. This guy does not know what he is talking about. Eh, fair enough. He is in denial about YouTube's agendas. YouTube is rewriting its rules so that they can more easily justify deleting all videos that they morally disagree with. It is also not a coincidence that this is happening right before the 2020 election. The liberals who run YouTube and Google are preparing for more censorship. Okay, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what YouTube and Google have planned for 2020 or beyond. I just know that thinking that December 10th is some big giant change in policy is not paying attention to what YouTube has already been doing. And if you've got a problem with what YouTube is doing, continue to complain about it. I have no problem with that. But the ultimate fact is that the new terms don't change what its current authority is. So if I can get out in front of what is a current panic, I will try to do that. This new language doesn't read to me like anything that fur- furthers any of YouTube's political agendas. They didn't need the language. I can tell you a number of my terms of services documents that I draft for clients or contracts or consulting agreements or master services contracts, whatever it might be, have language in them that says, hey, if this no longer makes commercial sense, we can do some things to change or terminate the relationship. That's pretty normal when you're interacting with a business and this is a business contract. And so the business says, hey, if something significant changes and we're losing massive amounts of money on this, if it's no longer commercially viable to us, we can end access. We can terminate services. We can curtail your ability to use them. And that doesn't strike me as unusual. How they use that might be unusual. But that, how they use the language that they already have in their current terms of service might be unusual. And that's what you need to worry about. And I don't begrudge anybody doing that. Finally, I just thought we'd add some uh, fun stuff. You know, I, I talked to some people. Don't read the comments, right? So we have some personal stuff. It took you 21 minutes to get to the actual subject of the video, you fat bastard. I'll never get those 21 minutes back. I say, hey, wow. Okay, all right. Fair enough. Get on the treadmill. No problem. LOL, this is very vague. The idea that you know what it means is laughable at best. There are a lot of dumb lawyers. You are one of them. There certainly are a lot of dumb lawyers. There's a lot of people in every profession that one might classify as dumb. Uh, whether or not you think that's me, I think that the purpose of that video, this video, the copa video, is to give you my thoughts on interpretation, which leads us to the last quote. I don't really care what you think. Either you can clearly state what it legally means, which you do earlier, confirming what people are saying, or you have nothing to say. Nobody cares about your interpretation that's not backed up by actual law. If I want to hear what people think it means, I don't need to watch a lawyer. So here's what I would say. Uh, Legalese is legalese because it's designed to be interpreted by courts. When you go and you have a terms of service, you enter into it with a business, and the overall idea is that both parties, to some extent, usually the business when you're talking about a contract of adhesion like the terms of service for an internet service, is that both parties can go and they can assume that a third party will look at this phrasing and think of it in certain ways. And so I've been to law school. I've been practicing for 15 years. I can talk to you about some of the thought process that goes into why language was selected and why it is in that document at all. In this case, I think that language was for belt and suspenders. I don't think they had it adequately covered in their current terms of service insofar as actually identifying and highlighting that this was a power that they had, even though that they had it. And so they wanted to highlight that in the future and people look at it rightly and say, well, maybe they're gonna use that as a cudgel for other things that they're already doing. Maybe they will, but that is a complaint that you have with how they are using the power that they already have, not with the fact that they are now highlighting that they have that power. That's overall a good thing. And as a lawyer, if you go and you hire someone to read a contract for you or to negotiate one, to interpret one. What you are getting is that lawyer's thoughts, that lawyer's thought process on how somebody, a third party that isn't sitting in the room right now or sitting on the opposite side of the table would interpret this contract in the future. That third party being a judge or a mediator or an arbitrator or whatever else you might call them in whatever country you find yourself. And so that's what a lawyer does. You have this notion that goes throughout a number of the comments, I didn't highlight them all, that the law is some kind of software code. That there are rules, you know when you bump up against either side, that's not the case. Like I said at the start of this video, YouTube came up with this new language, they put this language in here, and I'm interpreting what it means, what it might mean, how they might use it, and how it doesn't actually expand their powers. And that's my opinion as a legal professional. It doesn't mean you should react to it. It doesn't mean that you should rely on it, as we have in the disclaimers in this video and others. You do not have a lawyer-client relationship with virtual legality. If you have questions about this, you have to go consult your own legal counsel because everybody's situation will be different. When we talk about things like COPPA, you've got any number of variations on what your videos might be, what your channel might look like that might be compliant with COPPA, that might not. You need to have somebody, if you want legal professional assistance, go over essentially every video with you. And that's one of the reasons why it's so problematic for what YouTube has asked its content creators to do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what a lawyer does. And I have no problem with you calling me names or telling me I'm wrong or telling me I'm dumb. Do that in my comments. Absolutely. Lawyers get things wrong. And I'm always trying to educate myself to become better informed and to understand what people are concerned about at the end of the day. But ultimately, when we talk about what a lawyer does, that's what a lawyer does. When you say nobody cares about your interpretation, you fundamentally don't understand what a lawyer does when they look at a contract. And interpretation is probably the best word for what that service actually is. So that's been about 45 minutes of me going through the comments to my earlier video. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it informational and or educational. I try to get things across as clearly and as succinctly as I possibly can. But the nature of law, especially novel law like internet services and its interactions with COPPA and with Section 230 and with other things are still new. You say, Rick, hey, those laws to some extent went into effect in the 90s. How are those new? That's new in the world of law. Law moves at a glacial pace. One of the things I tell my clients when they want to start a company is that limited liability companies are still a new concept, and those developed in the 90s. But limited liability companies are still something that a number of jurisdictions are still getting their arms around, whether or not to treat them as corporations or partnerships or other things. The fact of the matter is, until you have a robust set of decisions and contours and it descriptions of what can and can't be done under specific laws about what contract language will or won't do. You only have interpretations and you have what amounts to best legally informed guesses as to how a third party might look at contract language, might look at statutory authority and otherwise. So hopefully again, this has been enlightening. Otherwise, if you thought this video was great, please like, please subscribe to the channel, share it with anybody you think might be interested. And please do let me know your own thoughts on everything that I said here in the COPPA video, in the earlier commercial viability and December 10th terms video. I'm always interested. I do check out as many as I can. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching if you watched on YouTube or thank you so much for listening if you listen to it in its podcast form. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.